Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> hey, get your Bibles out, and uh, we're going to jump into Second uh, Peter chapter 1. We've been uh, in this passage of Scripture for several weeks now because we have been uh, talking about... Let me stop us. Why are you here this morning? I want you to ask yourself a simple question, because uh, I'm going to ask you a simple question at the end of uh, this sermon. And the question I'm going to ask you is, will you alter your life in a way that will adjust itself to what we're going to talk about today? So I'm going to ask you to, to, to weigh what I'm saying, and uh, is it true? Now, that may not be what brought you here this morning, um, but I'd like for us to stop because this is going to be kind of a heavy thing that we're going to be talking about, all right? Because uh, it's asking us to, to, to make more than just a change in my life, but in the way that I think. And that's, that's going to be hard for us, okay? So can I pray for us? All right. Lord, uh, you got to show up. Because, Lord, we're, we're a tough group. We, we're cynical. We've heard so much before. We are resilient in what we think we know and what we think is right. And we are resistant to change. So, uh, come on. We pray. Amen. So, here we go. I hope I got your interest. Because what we've been talking about is, is it possible to ever experience change in our lives? Matter of fact, a lot of us have this idea that if I could change something in my life, then that change would create what I really want in life. Whether it's changing my job, or whether it's changing my personality, or whether it's changing the way I look, or how much I weigh, or anything. When I want this kind of change, the things that I love, to the things that I don't love. You know, that if I could break, create that kind of change, and that's going to give me the kind of life that I really want. We've been calling that the promised land. And we've talked about how it seems that the greatest obstacle to me getting to the promised land has been me. And how do I get past me if I'm the obstacle for me becoming a new me? So we talked several weeks ago about uh, how Christ came and crashed into this world, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to take our sins upon the cross and pay the penalty of me, and then he rose again so that I too can live a new life. That Jesus actually not only created change, he sustains change, and he's going to perfect change to the very end. And that change has already taken place for us that are in Christ. Matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the Bible is like an extremist book. Like, everything's either black or white or right or wrong. or It says things like, you're either dead or you're alive. Or you're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. There's not a lot of gray areas in Scripture. And I want to tell you that today, you're either dead or alive. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of light. But if you're in the kingdom of light, that change has already taken place. Radical gospel transformation. So we've been asking ourselves, if that's a reality, then why is that reality not a reality in my reality? Yeah, I just said that. Deal with it, all right? 
Michael, come on up. So we're in second. Uh, we're using Michael today as an example of change. So uh, Michael, if you just come stand over here and uh, do that thing I taught you. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Nobody's ever going to want to read, all right? Again, I'm sorry. Michael's going to read for a second, Peter. Chapter 1, because we've been talking about if this reality is a reality, then how do I live in that reality? Again, he did it. All right. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Okay, stop right there. Because here's what it just said. And I'm not kidding you. This is what it just said. He's given you, if you're in Christ, if you're in the new kingdom, if you've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of me, and you've been brought into the kingdom of him, he says he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. That's the NIV 1984 version. Everything. If that's true, then why do I not live in that? Why does that not feel true? Why does that not seem like reality? Why does it seem like I've I've been given nothing? And it's saying I've been given everything. You've been given If you're in Christ, you have everything. Is that what it says? Come on, people. Is that what it says? Yes. Okay. So that doesn't seem to jive with my reality. Why is that? Let's keep reading. All right. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So he says here, he says the reason that we don't, I mean, Paul says this all throughout his epistles. He says, open your eyes, wake up, sleeper. I hope that you can see, you can hear. What is he saying? He's saying that when we participate with the divine, what begins to take place is I begin to see that he's given me everything I need for life and godliness. My eyes begin to open the more I participate with the divine. So we asked a couple of weeks ago, well, okay, great. What does that mean? How do you participate with the divine? I mean, like, are we going to dance with Jesus or something? Exactly. Michael, would you please demonstrate? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can keep reading. All right. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that was an awesome dance, by the way. Well, yeah. Uh, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these... Qu- <laughs> That's a lot to handle. Uh, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there just for a second. Did y'all note that? It is possible for you as a believer to be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge. Okay? We're going to come to that in about four weeks, but keep going, Michael. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Thank you, Michael. Interesting thing, it's hard, it's actually impossible to be nearsighted and blind, isn't it? The Bible's so crazy that way. Okay. We've been talking about that uh, I participate with the divine by faith. And so we talked several weeks ago, is faith like heaven money? Is it what I use to exchange Jesus for all his good stuff, like what he did on the cross? Do I give him faith and he gives me the good stuff on the cross? Or I give him faith and he gives me the benefit of the resurrection. We actually unpacked how Scripture said that faith is actually a gift from God. That God gives us faith. In fact, it's not heaven money. It's a gift from God so that by faith I have the capacity to get my hands around or to receive 
the grace of God and all the things that he's given me. See how faith is operating as hands and arms. So the way I participate with the divine so that I can see that I've been given everything for life and godliness in this new kingdom is by faith. Last week, we unpacked the fact that Peter said, now add to your faith goodness, meaning participate now in physical reaction to what is a spiritual truth. And so we talked about moral goodness. We also talked about social goodness, that we are to be those that are for justice. And we began to really unpack that. (laughs) I don't know how you're doing this week. Because the funny thing when you start committing yourself to being good, uh, when you say, okay, the Lord says to do this, so I'm going to I'm going to try to be faithful to do this. Like, you know, the passage that we read, it talked about get rid of anger, get rid of rage. If you're an angry person, uh, like, do you deal with anger? Have you ever been angry and tried to get rid of anger? Doesn't that make you angry? I mean, seriously, our rage. Are you a rageaholic? Like, are there holes in the drywall at your house? You know, are there claw marks on the dash of your car? Are there, you know, are you a rager? And there is nothing, is, I, have you ever gone up to somebody in the middle of a rage and say, hey, you need to stop that? No, because they'll kill you because they're raging. You know, to tell somebody to stop something when they're in the middle of doing it, that's a dangerous proposition. Or how about this one, malice. Like, change the bad feelings that you have toward another person. Are you kidding me? Like, have you ever tried to, like, forgive somebody that you don't like? (laughs) No, I just don't like them. Or slander. Do you ever say anything about another person and you realize, oh, no, I need to keep my mouth shut now, you know? Or, Or how about filthy language, you know? Like, you know, do you ever cuss because you cussed and you were trying not to cuss? Like, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) figure that one out, all right? And it's easy for us to realize that the more I attempt to be good, the more I step into Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, the very thing that I want to do is the very thing that I don't end up doing. And he said, the very thing that I swear I will never do is the very thing that I end up doing. And I look in the mirror and I go, oh, man, I'm worse than I thought I was. And this trip to goodness has only exposed not my success at goodness, but my absolute failure at goodness. What good is that? Well, I want to encourage you because I think it leads us into what Peter is challenging us with next, which is now add knowledge to your goodness. I was reading The Voice of the Heart, um, Chip Dodd, this week, and he was talking about this struggle when, uh, when we're trying to do something or we, we experience hurt or a sense of failure. He says, hurt moves the heart toward healing. Imagine that, that my failure at trying to follow Jesus this week in goodness, maybe even by just, by just stopping my filthy language or choosing not to be angry this week, has, has really hurt me. That hurt moves us toward healing. Therefore, even if you're living in hurt, you're better off in the hurt than not to have to have it at all. Listen to what he says. He says, to not feel is to not be alive. Though sometimes being fully alive is excruciating. 
Isn't that true? He goes on to say this experience of hurting, reaching and trusting nourishes your faith because it really makes you question whether or not God cares. Doesn't it? Because it exposes your hope that God will meet your needs. You step into the hope that God can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Hurt actually is a gift from God. The coming to the awareness that my goodness is limited, but His goodness is limitless, is actually a healing proposition in my life. But I almost have to come to the end of myself before I can begin to see the beginning of Him. And so Peter says, hey, good, trust, because that's the foundation of every relationship. And then he brings in, now we need to understand. What does that mean? I just want to talk about that for a few minutes, this whole idea of knowledge. You know, when my kids were little, we had a rule in our house, nobody gets run over by cars. That was a simple rule in our house. And the way we, we enforced that rule was nobody goes near the street without mommy or daddy. I mean, it's just simple fact. You cannot cross that street unless you are touching flesh with my hand. You've got, no, you can't walk alongside of me. You can't like touch, you know. No, it's like firm death grip in the hand of daddy. And if you break this rule, what happens? There are consequences. And you know that whole thing we say as parents, don't worry, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. Uh Uh-uh. We didn't play that game. No, this will hurt you more than it hurts me. Because you will not go in the street. Because I knew the consequences of my kids going in the street without me. That they could get run over. Now, it's an interesting thing because they didn't understand that. They didn't under, all they could do was trust that Daddy loves me and that he's telling me not to do it. And if they didn't trust my love, then they needed to trust my belt. That's how serious I was about the road, right? Is, y'all, are y'all cooking with this? Have I just offended everybody? What? Okay, all right. Well, here's the interesting thing. I have a 22-year-old son who lives in Chattanooga. And uh, it's strange because about 10 times a day he calls me and he says, Dad, I'm standing on the corner. My car is on the other side of the street. Where are you? Son, you're 22 now. You can cross the road by yourself. You know, that would be strange, wouldn't it? He would need therapy. Probably needs it anyway. But he grew up with me. But, you know, as he grew older, I let go. Because he grew in his knowledge. So his goodness became a part of his life. The goodness of not wanting to be run over by a car. All right? This is a good thing to have in your life. A healthy respect for the front grill of a Ford. You know? So he grew in that knowledge. And as he grew in that knowledge, he had more freedom in his goodness as he expressed that. So Peter said, first we need to commit ourselves to goodness so that we learn what trust is in a relationship, even when we don't understand. But now that we have that trust... Now we need to trust enough to have knowledge. So what does that mean? Well, let me debunk a little bit. It's, it's not getting more information. I can tell you right now that getting more information is not the same as when Scripture talks about knowledge. You have access to more information right now than any generation that has gone before you. Seriously. You know, if, if you want to, there's not a preacher in the world right now that you couldn't come home and listen to tonight, Right? I mean, we have the Internet. We can listen to iPods. I mean, you can actually go to seminary online right now for free. I think uh, Reformed Seminary in Jackson, they put all their classes on YouTube. 
I mean, or they do it on the uh, iTunes, I think. They, they list them all. You, could, you can take every class I took in preparation for this position years ago. It's all out there. So if we just need more information to become people that fully participate in the divine so that we can see all that we have for life and godliness and live in that reality, then you would think that the church lives in that reality more than it has at any time in the history of the church. Is that true? <laughs> I'm asking. Probably not, right? So maybe it's more than information. Maybe what you don't need is just the right answer, even though every emotion in your body tells you that if you just had the right answer to the problem, you could solve it. When I'm hurting, I want to know what's wrong. Give me the answer of what's wrong, because if I know what's wrong, then I can fix it. Or if there's a problem, what, what's the issue? What's the answer? And I want to challenge you to something. Not to crawl out of your hurt, but crawl into your hurt and the reality of what God's doing in your life through knowledge. How do we do that? I'm going to use uh, a guy named N.T. Wright, a theologian. Maybe some of you have read some of his books. This is After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters. And he challenges us to think of knowledge a little differently than just collecting information. He challenges us. Oh, and by the way, this guy has a British accent, so that immediately legitimizes him. It's true. They know more because that's the way they talk. Um, And uh, he challenges us to maybe consider knowledge in a different way, that instead of knowledge being more information, Maybe knowledge begins with my ability or my willingness to think differently. To simply begin to think differently. Let me read. When Paul talks about the mind, he's not ranking Christians in terms of what we would call their intellectual or academic ability. But Paul wants all Christians to have their minds renewed so that they can think in a different way. He's talking about the book of Romans. And he says this whole book of Romans is dominated by his core belief that in the Messiah, Jesus, the age to come has already burst into the present age. Many Jews of the time expected the present age to come to an end and then the age to come to begin whole and entire. Paul sees that in Jesus Christ, the long-awaited age to come has already begun. And that is where Christians must consciously choose to live. So what he's saying is, is he's saying that, that the, the new age, the new kingdom, is not coming, it's already come. And as believers, as Christians, that have been birthed out of the kingdom of darkness, we've been birthed into a very real and present kingdom that is active and working right now. And our citizenship is in that kingdom, and our allegiance is in this kingdom, and our identity and our understanding of the world that we live in is in this new age that has dawned. Hmm. I mean, maybe you've heard that before. I mean, Jesus... In a lot of his parables, he says the kingdom of God is like, right? He even said to Pilate, didn't he say that, you know, I am a king, but it's not of this world. But when he rose, was he ushering in the new kingdom? A number of years ago, uh, 
I was with a group, and we went to Swaziland, Africa. Have, has anybody been to Swaziland? Awesome. It is the most backwards country in Africa I've ever been to, and I've been to quite a few of them. I mean, we show up at the border, and, you know, they're stamping our uh, passports, like in zebra blood and stuff, you know, and you must have scars on your face, you know, or... No, but seriously, I'm looking over the counter of this little shack that we're in, and there's the king in leopard skin, and he's wrapped in a lion, you know, something, and all his wives are behind him. I mean, literally, this is our king, the king of Swaziland. And so as we come through the borderland, we realize that we're just we're coming into grass hut country. And there's no buildings except what's made out of mud and grass everywhere. You see them on hills. And as we were coming into the farm where we were going to be staying, there was a woman up on the hill at the edge of the village who was doing this dance, and she had what looked like all these feathers on her, and she was shaking stuff. And I asked our driver, I said, so, like, who is that? And he goes, well, that's the local witch doctor, and she's cursing you guys as you come into the village. Oh. (laughs) Bye-bye now. You know, when you have that experience, you realize I, we're not in Nashville anymore, you know? I, she, has she had too much to drink? No, she is possessed by demons, and they are cursing that you're coming here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Literally, that's what was going on. And I could tell you more stories about that experience, but there is nothing more stark than the reality of going into that world realizing that this is a foreign world to me. And that's what... N.T. is trying to help us understand that Paul was writing about that when we get rescued from the kingdom of darkness, which is, this is the familiar air that we breathe. This is what we were born into. This is what seems natural to us. Okay? I mean, it's, think about it. It's natural to want to get filthy rich in this world. Why wouldn't you want everything? But when you get moved over to the kingdom, we realize money no longer defines me. Actually, money is not something that can even touch me. Actually, money is not something that limits God in anything that he wants to do in this world. It is a tool. It is nothing more than something I use at the disposal of my king. Right? But that's a foreign thought to this world right over here. That's as foreign as seeing the witch doctor up on the hill. What about humility? What does humility smell like over here in this world? Weak, stupid, you'll never get what you want, no backbone, no strength. Over here in this world, humility is about honesty. It's about integrity. It's about walking in a strength that is greater than yourself. It's about the reality of me being humble enough to ask you for forgiveness when I wrong you. Because here's what I understand. Listen to this. This is crazy. When I ask you to forgive me, I'm asking you to forgive me for what you saw that I did. What's shocking is what you didn't see. I know that. I'm asking you to forgive me for what you heard, I said. Oh, but you should have seen what I thought. Because what's going on that you don't see is ten times worse than what you see that's going on. That's what I understand in this new kingdom. I mean, Guys, I'm serious. Like, think about this. When we ask our wives to forgive us for something slipping out, it's only because a little bit of what we were thinking actually made its way to our lips. 
Really? Because women never do that. But humility in the new kingdom understands, man, I've been forgiven for a lot more than what I'm asking you to forgive me for. I also can easily forgive you because I understand the depth in which I've been forgiven. We understand over here, uh, man, to be first is, is to be first. You're the king when you're the first over here. And you fight to get first. And this kingdom over here, we know, we smell that, man. We know what a champion is over here, you know? Nobody wants to be a loser. And we know the qualities of a champion. We know what a champion looks like, smells like, tastes like. You know, we celebrate them. We cheer them on. We even hope that if we cheer you on more because you're a champion, then somehow or another I'm going to ascend to that. Maybe that's possible for me. And then we step over here in this new kingdom, and Jesus says, oh, you want to be first. That's a noble thing because you have the thumbprint of your, of your creator on you. He made you to want to be first. But in the new kingdom, let me tell you what it smells like over here. Become the servant of all. What? You see how far in this world is? See, Paul is challenging us to begin to think that going the extra mile is native to who we are. That using money and not letting it use us is native to who we are. That joy and peace apart from any circumstance, is a reality for me because I am in the new kingdom. Hmm. Changes the way that we think. Paul, or uh, N.T. Wright goes on. I won't read it to you, but you happy to borrow my book if you'd like to. He talks about that the new kingdom is like, like a wave coming in, that Jesus is coming in, and the culture that we live in, the old kingdom, is like the wave that is going out, but it's creating such an undertow that it seems to be weakening the power of the wave that is coming in. But there will come a time when Jesus appears where the tidal wave comes that is greater than any undertow, that nothing can stand it against it. But we're in that already and not yet time. Already the kingdom has come, but not yet to the degree that it will come. So we change the way that we think. The second thing that I'd like for you to consider this morning is not just changing the way that you think, but also uh, changing not what you think, but who you think. In other words, that you would begin to transfer your desire for knowledge from a what to a who. Let me try to explain. When I was uh, in elementary school, I had a gerbil farm. Did anybody have a gerbil farm? With the tubes running at the top of my bedroom, you know, and the gerbils just running it's like a, you know, wonderland, you know, and those little balls you can put them in, which I'm sure, you know, we'll find out one day the gerbils will take over the world and put us all in those things, you know. But, you know, it's cool because I had these gerbils and I wanted to study, you know, why they kept eating their babies and uh, yummy stuff like that. I learned about gerbils. And the more I learned about gerbils, guess what? I became a better gerbil farmer. Matter of fact, I, I could... I had a, you know, a city of gerbils. I could answer any question. I read all the books from the pet store. Is that kind of what God is? Is God kind of our gerbil? I mean, honestly, is, is God kind of our little project that we gain information about so that we kind of know how to make it better? That we go to church because we're religious, because we're spiritual, and, you know, we want to learn about God. And, you know, the more I know about God, kind of the more I can just kind of rub the genie bottle 
and kind of get God to, you know, do his thing, and I feel better about myself, and, you know, you know, I mean, is Jesus kind of, is he the object of my thoughts? Like, is that what it means to, to kind of have knowledge about God? Is it, is Jesus in heaven, like, looking to the angels and going, hey, Randy's thinking about us. Wow, that's so sweet. Is he doing that? Like, does he do that kind of stuff? Like, does Jesus, like, sit in heaven and hope that we'll, like, think about him, you know? And, like, does he hum, hold romantic songs from the 80s, you know, precious and few are the moment, you know? Does he do, seriously, does Jesus, like, does that kind of warm his heart when we, like, open the Bible and he goes, oh, hey, hey, shh, shh, shh. he's getting ready to read the Bible. Oh, he's asleep. <laughs> You know what I mean? We treat God as if he is demanding to become the object of our thoughts. And I want to suggest to you, that's not at all the reality of what Scripture teaches us. What Scripture teaches us is that God is the absolute, pre-existing, almighty one. And he is saying that we are the objects, not him. That he is the one that is all-knowing and all-powerful and the judge of all the world, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. And he will choose what is good for all things. And we are the subjects to this great and mighty king. And in that language, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who has the power to choose to do whatever he wants. And guess what? Whatever God wants, God gets. There is nothing that God desires that goes, oh, well, that is not a reality for God. For he is all-sufficient, all-powerful, and everything he desires, he acquires. Right? But that God and all that power and all that holiness and all that brilliance and all that he is that we cannot possibly fathom or imagine does this in the Old Testament. He uses the word know me like a husband says to his wife. Like a wife says to her husband. Like lovers say to each other. That's the language of knowledge and knowing in the Old Testament. Even in Ephesians, Paul says, I pray that you have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may climb great mountains, know a bunch of great theology. No, so that you can know him better. I strike you as odd. But God's unknowable, right? I mean, what you just said about how big he is and great he is, like, what, do, what can we know about God? I mean, come on, I was reading the other day, and uh, do you know that scientists have determined that there may be more stars than uh, we first thought? Does anybody know what they're predicting is how many stars are in the universe? 300 sectillions. Have you ever used the word sectillion? Well, I have with my bank account <coughs> on several occasions. That is three followed by 23 zeros. That is three trillion times 100 billion. Deal with that. And God says... He created them all. And what else does he say about the stars? Does anybody know? He knows them by name. 
300 sectillions by name. And we're supposed to say we can know that God? Well, here's what I want to challenge you with. Because as unknowable as God in all his power has decided to reveal himself. It is his joy and to his glory that he wants you to experience a revelation of him. He's taking us behind the curtain and saying, it's time for you to see. Do we see it all? No way. Do we understand it all completely? No way. But does that diminish the fact that if I don't know all truth, that the truth that I do know is still true? Absolutely. Did y'all get that? What I mean is, if I can't know everything that's true about this mic stand, it does not take away from the fact that what I already know about this mic stand is no less true, even though I don't know everything about this mic stand. And the truth that God gives me may not be to the extent that I will understand that a thousand years from now before his very presence, but it doesn't take away from the fact that what I do know right now is still true. Because this is what I know. What, what is revealed about God was revealed by God because in his infinite wisdom, he said, this is what you need to know. It was him that revealed everything. So what did he reveal? He gave us this wonderful little book. I'm about to challenge you with something, okay? And I want you to think. But let me first tell you what this book says about itself. In First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That the Lord is saying about this book that he actually produced this book for the purpose of doing these things in our lives. It's 66 books written by 40 different authors over a span of 2,000 years from every walk of life, kings to shepherds, and yet united and all pointing in one direction, Jesus Christ. Deal with that. That's a mind blower. Second Peter chapter 1, even the chapter that we've been talking about, says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets through, but prophets through humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Talking about how the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, spoke through prophets to create the Word. And I'm agreeing with you, that's outrageous. I mean, think about We're saying that God spoke through men to give us revelation of Himself. Now, you are the guys that are sitting here, not me. All right? I mean, Scripture, that's what it's saying about itself. Is that true? It's something we have to wrestle with. But through this book, we have everything from history writings to poetry. And I love the poetry parts. I mean, prophecy, the gospels, parables, epistles. There's all different kinds of writings in here. There's something for everybody. <laughs> I mean, it's remarkable, this work of art that God has put together to bring about a revelation of himself. And it's so beautiful in the sense of what it is. Even Jesus says to us in John chapter 5, be careful that you don't worship it. Be careful. He says to the Pharisees who were, who were really masters of the word, in John chapter 5, he's talking to them about what the word does and about his relationship with the Father. And he says, and the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form. 
nor does his word dwell in you. But they knew the word. They knew it backwards and forwards. He says, but his word didn't dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You studied the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What is he saying? He's saying something very powerful here, guys, that this word is leading not to a what do I believe is true, but to a who that I'm in relationship with. And I love that he said, you've not heard my voice. Do you hear the intimacy of that? That if I know the Father, that his word brings me to a place to where I begin to hear the voice of God. Renee and I have been married for... 24 years. I got that right, didn't I? All right. Celebration. And uh, it's a remarkable kind of thing because there's, there's certain benefits of 24 years of marriage. One is that we can be at a party, and, uh, and that party can be jumping, and there can be music going, and everybody's talking to where you're having to lean in just to, yeah, this is awesome. You know, you're just talking close face. And Renee can say my name from across the room, and I hear it. Has anybody else ever had that experience with somebody you know that well? Yeah, because her voice and the way she says my name is so familiar to me, you know, that as soon as she said it, I begin to shake. What? What did I do wrong? What? What? Yes. No, I'm joking. She wouldn't do that. But here's another thing. I can look across the room, and if our eyes connect, I can tell you, like, boom. Is it time to go? Are we staying? Have I done something wrong? Get you another drink? Are you mad? Are you happy? Are you upset? I, all those things I can learn with just a glance. And all I need is a quick connection of the eye. That's all I need. We don't have, need to have a conversation. That's why when you see really old people in restaurants and they're not talking, they're talking their heads off, but they're just communicating their looks. and Because they, they, they're referencing old conversations. That, conversation 37 slash 2B. Got it. <laughs> it's so true. You guys that have not been married, you know, and here's the sad thing, because I cannot tell you how many Christians that I have met, people that say, man, I've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Man, I want to know about this participation with the divine. I want to see that I've been given life. You know, I'll, I can quote the Bible. I was with a guy a couple of weeks ago from another city who was looking at me, and he goes, he goes, I can quote you the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the documents that we adhere to here in Midtown. Not as scripture, but as a guide. Uh, he says, I can quote from uh, Calvin's Institutes, which is John Calvin's uh, historical writings. He said, I can tell you I have memorized more scripture than anybody I know. And he said, but when you talk to me about the voice of God, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what it means to hear the sweet whisper of my Savior call my name. Do you? Is this just a religion that makes you feel good when you think about death? Or have you really been brought into a new kingdom where God is saying, you are my bride, my beloved? Do you know it? We talked last week. Y'all remember we talked about Elizabeth Fry last week? Uh, and how she heard the whisper of God call her, and she left 
uh, and started to change women's prisons in the 1800s all throughout England. Very wealthy woman. You know, what I didn't tell you about the story was about 10 years after she started her ministry to transform women's prisons, her husband went bankrupt. They lost everything. What kept her from looking at God and saying, that's unfair. Look at all the work I've done for you. I've gone into women's pr- I've spent nights in women's prisons. I have started schools for kids that would have never learned how to read and write. And now we're on the streets? We're on the streets? Now we have nothing? Boy, I could, can you understand her saying that? I could understand her saying that. What kept her from saying that? Why did she not go there? Could it be that she thought about life differently? And could it be that her knowledge was more of just knowing Scripture, but it knew a Savior? I uh, was reading about Mother Teresa this week, who loved reading about this woman, her struggles, her doubts, her brilliant faith. I mean, it's just... And I was reading a story about a U.S. senator who had gone over to be with her in Calcutta, and they ended up at the end of the day at the House of Dying. In the House of Dying, Mother Teresa uh, went to India and felt led by God to give, create this house where people that are dying can, can die in dignity. In that culture, that's not something they allowed because of karma. She felt like that everyone deserved that. And so this house of the dying was just a house of, just as you can imagine, people dying. And the senators watching her feed these people and love these people, everything from leprosy to every disease you can, tuberculosis, you name it. And he's, he's looking at her and he's looking out over Calcutta, which is millions of people, and he goes, you can't possibly believe that you're ever going to succeed at this. How can you possibly, in light of just absolute human tragedy and pain, how can you ever believe that you're going to succeed? And she says something, and I want you to hear this. Is she is whispering it from the place of participating with the divine. Because these kind of words only come from this place where you hear the name, your Savior say your name. She said, I've not been called to success. I've been called to faithfulness. Because that's what you do when you hear your father say, come on with me. You don't care where you're going. You're just with your father. Your dad says, hey, we're going to go do something. You don't care what you're going to go do. I just, where you're going, I'm going. You're not asking me to be successful. You're just asking me to be faithful. She says this later. I try to give to the poor I try to give to the poor people for love what the rich could get for money. No, I wouldn't touch a leper for a thousand dollars, yet I will willingly cure him for the love of God. Whose love of God? The lepers? No. Her love of God. What generates that kind of love for God that someone would embrace somebody else with leprosy? People who's changed their thinking and has started to learn truth as a way to hear the voice of their Savior. So let me, uh, I want to wrap this up. Here's my question to you. Will you make place for this in your life? Simply put, if Midtown began to really embrace this, if we became people of the Word, I think it would really become a dangerous place for us 
because we'd start standing on promises that maybe we never even knew existed in here. And we'd start living in ways to where we're whispering stuff like what Mother Teresa is saying. I mean, we whisper it because it's so dangerous, it's hard to speak it that loud, right? But then we begin to whisper it to each other. And who knows what might begin to happen in our lives. And so Scripture talks about really five ways that we should treat this book. One is that we should, we should make room in our life to hear it. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it talks about that, that hearing, well, you can read it. And it talks about how we need to put ourselves in a position where we hear the Word and teaching on the Word. I encourage you to continue to do that. You know, the second thing that we need to do is we need to be studiers of the Word. That we don't need to just be listening like you're doing now. You should make room in your life to study the Word. Meaning you should get out your pencil and your paper and you should really study what does this text mean? What does this passage mean? How do I interpret Scripture? Matter of fact, uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to be offering a class uh, on how to study the Word. It's like a six, seven-week class to help aid you in acquiring some tools to help you learn how to study. Do you study the Word? You should study the Word. The third thing Scripture says, really tied with the fourth thing, is that we should memorize and meditate on the Word. Now, why would it do that? I mean, that sounds so legalistic, right? But there's really a beautiful aspect of what the Lord wants us to experience, and that is if you've never really meditated on something, where you've gotten still and you've really meditated on something. And you know what's crazy about you? It's crazy about me. When I get still, my mind goes crazy. Do you ever find it hard to go to sleep at night because you shut your eyes and then everything, like a thousand TVs come on of all the things that you should be thinking about? Well, meditation really is turning all those TVs off in your head and taking Scripture that you've memorized and putting that on the center screen and saying, you know what, Lord, I want to meditate on that. I, I want to meditate on that truth. I'm not going to meditate on worry. I'm not going to meditate on fear. I'm not going to meditate on how I can control situations to get what I want. I'm going to meditate on your Word. I'm going to make time in my life. And as you begin to make more and more time to be still, to meditate, you find that you begin to meditate with the Lord. Well, Lord, what do you mean by that? When I was uh, in college, I was a veterinary uh, major, veterinary science major. And you know, you know what's remarkable about cows that they have four stomachs? Did you know that? Some of you knew that. Others have just been taught. Bam. All right? And the big stomach is uh, they feed on grass, and it fills up the big barrel stomach. And that has muscles in it that keep churning it and rolling it into balls. And at the in, at, in the heat of the day, they crawl up underneath their trees or whatever, and they regurgitate those balls and chew on them. And that's called chewing their Good. There you go. Memorization and meditation is much like throwing up. End of story. You get it. I don't have to explain that. But what, what gives your thought? What do you give your thoughts to? Where does your mind go? Where do you, you say, well, I can't control my mind. Right. Come on. Where do you choose to put your thoughts? And finally, in Revelations 1.3, it says, read it. Just read it. Because we believe that by reading it, God saturates me. So what's at stake? Let me tell you what's at stake. What kingdom are you living in? I want to introduce you to somebody. It's wrapped up. Uh, 
want to introduce you to George. Uh, last week, we talked about Elizabeth. This week, let's talk about George for a minute. And George was born in 1842. And let me ask you a couple of things. Uh, I think it's only fair. Turn around and play. play. Uh, how much do you think George weighs? 280. More? 300. He's a hardy boy. That's why he's wearing black. Uh, makes him look slimmer. And uh, where do you think he gets his hair cut? I mean, come on. He had, somebody had to cut his hair. I mean, look. I mean, it's cut. Do you think he cuts his own hair? No. Who cuts his hair? His wife. Any other guesses? Super cuts. We've been around since 1829 as George. How fast do you think George could run a mile? Three days. Come on. This is 1829 strong, all right? They didn't have cars back then. They walked everywhere. How long? How fast do you think he could run a mile? Eight minutes. Dude, I love that. How old do you think he is in that picture? Okay. How many of you find him attractive? Just by a show of hands. If you find him attractive, raise your hand. How many of you find him unattractive? Everybody's got to vote. I'm not leaving until everybody votes. How many of you find him unattractive? He's just not a particularly attractive man. Raise your hand if you do not find him attractive. Three people have voted in this room. How many of you want to go home? All right, all right, I got a couple. All right. You know what's remarkable, and I'm going to say it again. Do you know that all the questions that I've just asked you are the questions that dominate and obsess our minds? How much do you weigh? How fit are you? Who's going to cut your hair? Who finds you attractive? What do you look like? Do you understand all those obsessions are the obsessions of this kingdom over here? But yet they, they, they carry with us such weight that they rock and ruin our world. They tear us apart. And we start living in this house of, it's called, I call it the fun house of mirrors. And that is, and you've all got them. And that is, what mirror are you going to stand in front of today? And I got mirrors in my fun house that can do anything, that can make me look ugly, that can make me look attractive. In my mind's eye, and I go from mirror to mirror to mirror to mirror because I get trapped in this crazy fun house that the questions that I've just asked you about, George, have any kind of value whatsoever. They have no value. Matter of fact, the story I'm about to tell you about George, you could care less what he weighed like. Matter of fact, you put no value on this man for what he weighs or how fast he can run the mile and yet you do it to yourself. Change the way we think, people. And we don't change it alone. We pick up the Word, and we begin to realize there are promises in here, and there are things being said about me that are true. George was a brilliant young man. Matter of fact, he's a pretty sharp, intelligent guy. And uh, in his teens, he really felt that the Lord... He heard the Lord's voice, and the Lord was calling him to be a pastor. And so he began to educate himself to be in the ministry. Uh, actually went to seminary 
and as a young man, wrote a paper that he received a lot of acclaim for. Like, people were like, man, this is brilliant stuff. Something happened to him. At the age of 20, George went blind. Unexpectedly. And when he went blind, one of the greatest heartaches of his life occurred. And that was the, the woman that he loved, that he was engaged to, that he was going to marry and spend the rest of his life with, came to him and said, I will not spend my life with a blind man. He started Aerosmith. <laughs> that was such a good joke. I'm all out of love. I'm so sorry, Jesus, I know. He's going to rebuke me for that later. You know, you had him right there. I don't want you to get emotional. I want you to step into truth. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm trying, I'm trying to expose you. And so George wrestled with, well, how am I going to live my life? How am I going to minister? How am I going to do the things that God's called me to? How am I going to get over this broken heart? And his sister stepped in. And she said, uh, I will become your eyes. And she moved in with her brother, and she goes, I'm going to take care of you. And for years, she, she cared for him. She became his constant companion. He actually started a church. The church grew. It was a huge church. Preached every Sunday with the help of his sister. Then one day she came to him and she said, George, I've fallen in love. And he's asked me to marry him. And George is ecstatic. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And she goes, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with a blind man. So, on the night of her wedding, George is at his house, blind, reliving the tragedy of his own fiance dumping him. And now his sister, who was his lifeline to life, is now leaving him, not knowing what the future is going to hold. All I can see is darkness. And now, once again, I'm all alone because nobody wants to be with a blind man. And sitting there that night all alone, he wrote this song. Doesn't look like a songwriter, does he? He wrote this song called, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. How could a man in such pain and tragedy write about the love of God not letting him go? How is that possible unless he thought differently? Unless there was something more to just knowing facts but knowing a person. Can I read you just one stanza? It says, O oh, joy that seeks me through pain. Get that the joy that seeks me through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain. And feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be that there will come a day where I will shed no more tears. So here's what I want to challenge you to today, Midtown. Add to your goodness knowledge. Be active. How are you doing that with this word so that we can grow in that and grow in the faith of participating in the divine and living in the reality that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We love you. We praise you that you are the love that will not let us go. Lord, draw us into yourself now, I pray, as we come into this time of worship and singing. 
Lord, I know that maybe you're doing something in this room. Maybe there's some lives right here in this room that you're just speaking to. Maybe for some of the people in this room, Lord, your voice is unfamiliar, but yet it is knowable. Let them hear you, Lord. Let them see you, Lord, I pray. Give us courage not to fight for success, but, Lord, simply to be faithful. In Christ's name, amen.